You're listening to sermon audio from The Shore Church, located in North Vancouver. For more information about The Shore, head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Well, we are continuing in our series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Way too much to do today, so let's just get right after it. My name is Jordan. Excited to get into this text. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Let me start by asking you a few questions and tell me if you can relate to these. Um, What do you do when you know the answers, but you have a hard time living them out? Uh, What do you do when you know the head knowledge, but your heart isn't there yet? Because I've had times in my life where I've just been nailing the things I'm supposed to do. You know, the things like I'm on a, a good reading plan, I'm serving, I'm praying, I'm doing all the things, but Jesus seems far from me. You ever been there? Your faith feels more intellectual than relational. I believe that, you know, strength is an admirable characteristic, but weakness is far more relatable. And so I never want to stand up here and act like I have it all figured out or I'm perfect because I'm far from that. I'm just as much in need of God's grace as anyone else. So if I'm being honest this morning, um, there were things that I took part uh, in my life before coming to know Jesus that I found really hard to shake once Jesus found me. Anyone else? And I can't say that I was fully prepared for that because I was under the impression that if I just gave my life to Jesus, then all of my struggles would go away. Anyone else ever think that? Believe in Jesus, all your struggles are gone. It's just not a biblical reality. And so I found myself in seasons being unable to shake darkness off of me. And and sure, there were seasons when things went well, where I felt like I had victory over these things, only to fall back into them again and be like, dang it, I blew it. And so, so what do you do when you have things in your life that you can't shake? What do you do when your head knows all the answers, but your heart and your feet can't line up with them? Do we just like try harder? What do we do when we feel like we're not living and trusting God how he wants us to and so we feel like he's disappointed in us and now he won't bless us or love us like we want him to? How do we, how do we approach God in those moments? Well, let's dive into our text and we'll, we'll read a little bit, we'll talk, we'll read a little bit, we'll talk. We'll start in verse 15 of Ecclesiastes 7. Here we go. In my life, I have seen everything. So again, if you haven't been here, this is King Solomon. He has experienced life and all of its pleasures to a level that we can never possibly imagine. Here's what he says. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, There is a major, major difference between Christianity and basically every religion, philosophy, general mindset out there which have their centrality focused to some degree on the idea of karma. That whatever actions, good or bad, you put out into the universe will be returned to you accordingly. You've heard of this, yeah? So that if you're good, good things happen. If you're bad, 
bad things will happen to you. Prominent religions are built upon this idea that if you follow the religious rules, then you will get blessings. Maybe you'll get heaven, you'll get wealth. Maybe you'll become a god yourself, depending on what you believe. And if you're bad, if you don't follow the rules, then you will be punished and your god will be mad at you. And it's not just a religion thing, but it's, it's culture at large, like listen to language these days. I've heard people say countless times something like, I have this important thing coming up this week, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some good, I'm gonna put some good energy out there, some good juju out there, so that things will go well for me. And now, while karma is absolutely not a biblical idea, um, and most of us would be like, oh, we, we don't believe in karma, I would contend that as Christians, me included, we've believed it to some extent, whether, whether we say it out loud or not. We believe that, hey, if I'm reading my Bible consistently and, and going to church and, and doing all the things, God's gonna love me more and he's gonna bless me more and be happier with me. But if I'm falling asleep in my morning prayer time or I fall into that sin again, God's gonna be disappointed in me and not bless me. And here's Solomon's problem with this idea. He says, I've known good and righteous men who have died young and I've known wicked, evil men who have lived long, healthy lives. He says, I've known people who love God with all their heart, who live upright, who follow all the rules, are good human beings, and they die horrific deaths or experience incredible suffering in life. And at the same time, I know a lot of of wicked men who have lived to be old, old men and have lived off the incredible wealth they've acquired by doing wickedness. He's saying if karma exists, it doesn't add up. But that's not his only problem with it and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. Verse verse 16. He says, be not overly righteous and right there we're like, that's a command I'm nailing, right? (laughs) Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, doesn't this make it sound like righteousness should be taken in moderation? Don't be overly righteous. It's an interesting thing to say. It's as if he's saying, hey, do good Christian things, like go, go to church, invite people over for dinner, but don't go too far. Take it easy. Don't tell everyone about Jesus. Let's go easy on the righteousness and just blend in as good church people. Nothing more. Righteous, but not overly righteous. Um, that's not what he's saying for the record. What the scriptures are saying is that there is a rightness that is wrong. He's attacking this idea of us being right in our own eyes by our own works. He's attacking the idea of self-righteousness. What do I mean when I say that? Well, here's a little definition I came up with. Self-righteousness is defining our rightness by what we do or do not do and holding that standard as correct and morally superior to others. 
because when you measure your rightness by what you do or do not do, you are forced then to measure your rightness at the expense of other people. This is why so many in our society don't feel like they have a need for a savior because we have defined wickedness in a comparative manner and by large-scale events. And by doing so, we're able to sit there and say, well, I don't do that thing, so I must be better than them. I don't murder people. I don't steal. I don't blow stuff up, so I must be right and good. We compare ourselves, we compare ourselves to large-scale wickedness or sometimes just to a, a few people we know who are a little bit worse than us. We'll be like, I'm not that bad. My, my neighbor Carl is a scoundrel. I'm better than him, so I must be a good person. And that's how we've defined rightness. And do you know who had a huge problem with defining rightness this way? You're in church. What's the answer? Jesus. Always guess Jesus. He had monumental problems with defining rightness in a way that puts what you do or don't do against someone else as if that's the bar we need to exceed. And I can think of no better example of this than the parable that he tells in Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, flip open to Luke 18, verse nine. I'll give you a second to get there. Luke 18, starting in verse nine. Pay close attention to who he's speaking to here. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here we go. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So if you don't have much church background, a Pharisee is a religious leader. They would be experts in the scriptures, experts in the law. They would have been very reputable men within the church. And then we have tax collectors. Um, there's not really a modern day equivalent to them, but, but they were wicked men who purchased the right from Rome to raise funds by taking taxes from people to build up an army that was responsible for the murders and rape of thousands of women and men and children. They essentially betrayed their own neighbors to earn a profit. And so that's who we have about to pray here. And I'm gonna say right out of the gate, I think the Pharisee, especially if you've been in church, the Pharisee gets a bad rap. We're always like, oh, those Pharisees always doing things wrong. But, but I'm telling you, on the surface, his prayer isn't really that bad. We won't find out the problem until the very end. Verse 11. So the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you. I thank you. It's God-centered, it's God-centric. It's not God, I thank me. It's not God, I did a good job. The credit is being put on God. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, I don't see a big problem with what he's saying. We've all done this, right? He's saying, thank you, God, that you saved me from becoming an evil person. 
Thank you, God, that I'm not a murderer, I'm not a thief, I'm not an adulterer. Thank you that by your grace, you saved me from becoming what I could have become without you. It's not a bad thing to thank God for that. It's a legit prayer. So he says, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I will say it is kind of shady that in the middle of his prayer, he's like, or like this guy. We might not have verbally said that, but we've thought it. Surely we've seen something play out poorly for someone else, and we've been thankful that those weren't our circumstances. That's all he's doing. He's not saying I'm better than this guy. He's saying, thank you, God, that my circumstances are not like his. He goes on, verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Okay, this guy is intense. Like, he goes huge with the righteous religious acts here. He's not doing the ones that we all do, but he's doing the ones that we don't want to do. He's not saying, I go to church whenever it's Sunday morning. No, he's saying, I fast. Like, don't eat because there's something better than food. It's a wildly unpopular practice, though it is a command of God. And by law, he was only required to fast once a week, but this guy's like, no, I'm going too. I'm going big. And he says, I give tithes on everything. What this means is, by law, he was only required to tithe on his earnings, but he's like, no, 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 I'm going bigger. I'm not just tithing on what I make, but I'm tithing on what I buy as well. So every single transaction, in or out, I'm tithing on. Like, this guy is next level. He's serious about his obedience to God's law. This is a guy who on paper, like you would want working at a church, you would want leading a community group, you would want this guy to disciple you. And that's the end of his prayer. And then we'll get into the tax collector's prayer, which is significantly shorter. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, surely the tax collector could have said something positive here. Surely he could have said, God, I thank you that I'm at church and you've reminded me to pray but he doesn't say anything like the Pharisee. There's nothing moral or religious in his prayer at all. He simply cries out in agony while he hits himself, God, be merciful to me. Like, this guy is a wreck. And it may not look like it when you think about his state and the agony but he's in a really beautiful place spiritually. And the next verse is going to make sense of it all in what is an extremely beautiful, but at the same time weighty, heavy verse. Verse 14. It says, I tell you this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Justified is a theological word that means righteous. 
Jesus is saying that the tax collector now has right standing before God, that God has no wrath for him. And that's a beautiful verse that should give every single one of us an abundance of hope because if God can save the tax collector, surely he could save us. But the thing is, the sentence doesn't end there and it actually makes it now an extremely weighty verse as well. Look at it. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Which means that the tax collector has right standing before God, but the Pharisee does not. And so what's happening here? What's the problem with the Pharisee's prayer? Well, well, let's say, for example, that both of these guys um, die on their way home. I know, real dark illustration. They die on their way home. They're standing in front of God, and God says, you died today. Why should I let you into my heaven? The response of the Pharisee is, God, you should let me into heaven because I was not a murderer. I was not a thief. I was not an adulterer. I attended church every time the doors were open. I fasted. In fact, I didn't just fast the required amount, but I went above and beyond what you required of me. I didn't just give what you wanted me to give, but I went beyond what you asked me to give, and you should let me in because I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and you should let me in for that reason. See, see, the problem with the Pharisee's prayer is not that he gave credit to his righteousness, but that he thought his righteous works justified him before God, and God says, not justified. It's exactly what Solomon's warning us about, being overly righteous. And then we get to the tax collector and he's brought before God and God says, why should I let you in? And I got to imagine the tax collector like just falls on his face. Drowning in his own tears, he's thinking about his life and all he can say is, God, you shouldn't let me in. You shouldn't let me in based on anything I've done. I'm a sinner. My only hope, the only way I'm getting in is that in your grace, by no work of my own, but by the work of Jesus, you look past my sins and be merciful to me. And God says, justified, come on in. See, Jesus is going to constantly refute this idea that Ecclesiastes was setting up years in advance that your external actions somehow make you righteous. Paul will say in Galatians 2.21 that if righteousness were obtained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so there's a rightness that is wrong. And Solomon is caught up in a cycle where every time he tries to be right by his own power, he ends up becoming self-righteous. And every time he tries to do what is right, he feels his chest starting to puff up and he begins to look down on other people. And it has a brutal impact on his spirit. Look at verse 16 of Ecclesiastes 7. 
He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So the wrong kind of rightness in the end destroys a piece of your soul. God's saying there's a part of your soul that's meant to thrive when it's filled with the right kind of rightness, but at the same time, if it's filled with the wrong kind of rightness, it will destroy you. He goes on, verse 17, he's gonna try the other side of the spectrum. He says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So he said, when I pursue righteousness, I become self-righteous and I build myself up and I begin to look down on others. It goes bad for me. I'm just following all these rules and there's no joy in that. But when I try the opposite side of things and I try to be wicked or do nothing, part of my soul dies there as well. So his big advice, his revelation for us is don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. And we're left like, thank you? That's it. He's gonna explain why in verses 18 and 19, and then he's going to absolutely blow up his own explanation. All right, good times coming. Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this. Take hold of what? Uh, Righteousness. He's saying it's good that you should desire to have right standing before God. It's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men more than 10 rulers who are in a city. So what he's getting at here, he's saying the man who is wise, the man who fears God will figure out how to be the right kind of right while avoiding the wickedness of the world. So we should strive for rightness, the true and good kind of rightness, not the wrong kind of rightness, and we should avoid wickedness. And he says the one who can figure out how to do this is smarter than 10 rulers because it's an incredibly challenging thing to pull off. Why is it challenging? He tells us in verse 20. Surely there is not, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He's just completely backed us into a corner here because he's saying strive for righteousness, avoid wickedness, but no one's ever going to be righteous. Thank you. He says the key to life is becoming truly righteous and avoiding wickedness and you have no chance of doing so. Wow, encouraging. He goes on, verse 21. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. This is an interesting thing to put in here. He's trying to tell us that that it is unwise, uh, it's a waste of time, damaging to your soul to pay serious attention and open space in your heart for what other people say and think about us because in the end, there is no righteousness to be found by gaining their approval anyways. And so now he's gonna go on and try to figure this out for us. He's gonna try to figure out how to be the right kind of right and avoid wickedness. And look what he says about the process, verse 23. 
He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He's saying that this desire we have to be right and to have right standing before God, he's saying it's a very difficult and deep and complex thing because whenever he's tried to pull it off by his own strength, it goes wrong. And whenever he does nothing, he falls into wickedness. And no matter what he tries, it doesn't work. And so we have to ask, you have to be wondering right now, what do we do here? Because again, I think a lot of us in here might know some intellectual, good Sunday school answers. Like we could say, you just gotta have faith, man. Just gotta wait on the Lord. Just trust in Jesus. Like yes, yes and amen. All those things are true, but what do you do when you know those things but you can't get there? Well, unlike Solomon, we have the benefit of the entire story. And what you'll find often is that the Old Testament asks questions and the New Testament helps answer them and fulfill them. And so we have this big question here that since no one can be the right kind of right, and even when we think we're nailing the right kind of right, it goes wrong, we have to ask, is there any hope for us? What do we do? Well, the million dollar, all important, life freeing answer is that we don't need to do anything. Flip with me to Romans chapter eight. We'll start in verse one here. It says, there is therefore now, what's the word? No. That means none. Zero. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation is there? None. No works. So what's going on? Something must have happened then. Something has happened through Jesus that has removed the law following, the religiosity, the karma from our eyes, from our lives. Something occurred in the work of Jesus to remove that do good to get good attitude. Because you and I, because of the sinfulness in our hearts, we are deserving of condemnation. But now somehow, this man, this God Jesus, through his work, there is no condemnation for us. And that means that our past, our present, our future, whatever moment you have in your life, that that you went further into darkness than you ever thought you could ever go when you did that thing that even the thought of it right now pummels you with guilt and shame, there is no condemnation for that. It means that right now, 
Like this very moment, as you are in your seat, Jesus is not in love with a future, all cleaned up, better behaving, better rule following version of you, but he loves you as you are right now. That's beautiful, come on. For those who believe in Christ, something has happened in the work of Jesus and the thing that he did is what separates Christianity from every religion and philosophy out there. So what did he do? Verse two of Romans eight. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law or the rule following, weakened by the flesh, weakened by us, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So something happened in the middle of our balancing act of doing good and bad, in the middle of the scale of our good works and our bad works, measuring our goodness against our badness, Jesus intervenes right in the middle of it with love. God comes in the flesh, absorbs the condemnation that we deserved, and he pays the bill on our behalf. Jesus, grace, love, pays the bill, and that, and that alone makes us righteous. This is what sets us apart. We don't ascribe to earning righteousness because it's been given to us freely by the grace of God when we did nothing to deserve it. Hear me, if this is all you hear, righteousness is a state of being, not a list of action items. Righteousness is the way we are because of the work of Jesus. Something I've been, I've been thinking about. God says about Jesus, he says, this is my son whom I love, in him I'm well pleased. Do you know when he says that to him? It's before Jesus' ministry begins, before he does anything, not after the resurrection. It's a beautiful reminder that God's love always comes before and it is not contingent on anything we achieve or accomplish. And that's the most freeing thing in the world. Let's pray. Um, I, actually, why don't you bow your heads, get into a state, if, if you feel comfortable, a, a posture of prayer and reverence to God. I, I wanna just ask a few questions that I want you to just wrestle with with yourself this morning. 
If I were to ask you to tell me why you're righteous, what would you say? What makes you right before God? Does God love you? And whatever the answer is, why? Because if God is pleased with you because of what you did or didn't do, that's outside the scriptures. And maybe you're thinking that God doesn't love me because I've done this or I've done this or last night I really blew it. Okay, well, know with assurance that, yeah, you, you may have blown it last night, but the grace of God has not abandoned you. You can repent and move forward now. Jesus paid for that. And maybe you're in here and you have this darkness that you've been carrying for years and years. You, you were a part of something that you did that you couldn't believe that you could do and it's left you scarred and it continually pummels you. Well, maybe this morning you finally hear that there's no condemnation. Not because of your works, but because he is our righteousness. Because God did what you cannot. And so maybe today it's not about the perfect answer, but it's just about stepping closer to his grace. And so, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters in here. I'm just constantly perplexed by your grace. Just even, even thinking about my own life, I'm constantly perplexed that you would love a wreck like me. And so this morning, I pray that you would be with each of us as we just examine our hearts. We examine things that maybe we haven't given to you. Maybe they've just been beating us down for years, for decades. May we just know with assurance that there is no condemnation for those things. That you love us despite those things. That there's nothing we need to do to fix ourselves or clean ourselves up for you to love us, but you love us now as we are. I pray as we live this place, we would not be people trying to earn your favor, living by the ways of karma, trying to do good to earn your favor. We would just be people who sit underneath your waterfall of grace and know with assurance that you love us and all the work has been done and accomplished through you on the cross. We love you. We need you. Help us. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from The Shore Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not charge for it. Learn more about The Shore at www.theshorechurch.ca.